Watch your step, Mama. Be careful. It's right so there. It's warm here. I'm toasting. It's Alaska, head. right? Icebergs, igloos, polar bears. Am I wrong? <laughs> Hot. Hi, sweetheart. Igloos are a little farther north. Come on. Give your mama a big hug. That's a Mrs. Nadine Fleischman, Joel's mother, arriving in Sicily, just uh, fresh off the plane. And uh, she reminds me a lot of what, uh, this is Joel's like ex-fiance when she came to town, Elaine. Uh, she said the exact same thing. It was like, where's all the igloos? Where's the Eskimos? Yeah, so we're again we're in Sicily and in a period of uh, of not a lot of snow. I, I think this was shot in November or probably uh, probably October maybe, uh, but I guess it doesn't snow that early. Yeah, but even still, like there's no igloos in Alaska, right? <laughs> oh, uh, you're probably right. Joel says so. He says they're farther up north. I'm guessing. Does he mean like the North Pole? Like North Alaska gets pretty north, at least if I'm thinking of like. Our map, which I know is like a false representation of the globe, right? But you're probably right. There's there's no there's no igloos until you get really close to the North Pole. I don't know. Hang on, let me see. <laughs> yeah. I suppose as long as you had ice, you could just make an igloo. I don't know if it's like customary, but well, it looks like they're used in the Canadian Arctic up there. But I'm not seeing any mention of it being predominantly used in Alaska. But it's also like. In the 1990s. Like, I, when are, are people even still using igloos? I think if you're like out in the wilderness, uh, look, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly why people build igloos because they probably just don't have any other material, right? So if you're really out in the wilderness, apparently making a building out of ice can keep you warm, right? Is that the idea? Yeah, but like, that's only <laughs> if you're like not in civilization. Right, yeah. Yeah, like they're obviously, you know, they're heading into a town. There must be parts of, uh, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, Nadine should understand that. <laughs> they don't need to build igloos here. They have a town. They have a, uh, a small a small town, but a town. Anyway, what are we talking about here, Lee? This is Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television series. Uh, we're now in the fifth season of the show. And this podcast is called the Northern Overexposure Podcast. It's hosted by me, Lee, and you, Charles, and uh, me, I've seen this show before, big fan of the show. Charles, you're watching each episode for the first time, so you have a bit of a fresh perspective. And part of our mission statement with this podcast, obviously we want to overanalyze the show, but we also want to expand the reach of Northern Exposure because it uh, has sort of fallen out of the limelight. It's actually very hard to watch this show. It's never been available for streaming. So we love to talk about it, but I don't think most people would know what we're talking about, at least today, uh, when we when we ask them about Northern Exposure. So part of our mission statement is to invite on a guest each episode, typically someone who hasn't seen the show. That way we're sort of like introducing the show to a new person one episode at a time. And uh, Charles, we've talked about this a bit last episode. We're, we're in the fifth season now. There's some structural changes happening in the uh, producing side of the show. The showrunners have left. Uh, the original show creators, I guess, have left the series at this point. Now we've got David Chase running the show. And um, yeah, we, we, were, we were not too, we weren't uh, very big fans of the last episode. Uh, and I think before recording, Charles, you texted me that this was not 
Also not a great episode. Yeah, I mean, I just think they're kind of bringing the sitcom into Northern Exposure because this is a pretty sitcom structure, in my opinion. The only thing that it did that actually avoided it, though, was like the way they executed it. Okay. Because I thought for sure, like Maggie was going to be involved with this in some way. Oh, right. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thankfully, she was not. Uh, <laughs> even still, like, I, I thought it was better than last week's episode. Yeah. It's definitely not one of my favorites, but it has some neat parts to it and some parts that I'm nah, not really fond of. Well, I think we should just hop into it. We've kind of we've kind of laid the, the groundwork for why we might not like this episode, but I think you're right. It's it's better than the last episode. Well, who are the people that were directing and writing this episode? All right, so this episode is called Birds of a Feather, season five, episode six. It was directed by Mark Horowitz. This is his first and only episode of Northern Exposure. I uh, tried to look him up on IMDb. Prior to this, he had directed uh, three episodes, I think, of Doogie Howser, MD. He later goes on to direct JAG and a handful of episodes for NCIS. I think he's also a producer. But the writers for this episode were Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, who will go on to work on The Sopranos with David Chase. And uh, they've written quite a few episodes of Northern Exposure. Before this, I wrote down specifically Jaws of Life, which was earlier in this season. I believe that was the second episode of this season, third episode of this season. Uh, So not very far from where we are now, but um, I also wrote down the episode My Mother, My Sister. It's the 18th episode in season three. Uh, because there is some show Bible. There's actually a lot of show Bible in this episode, like things that are brought up that have already been established. So, you know, it feels like it's connected to some of the past episodes. And in fact, it's connected to episodes, or at least in this case, uh, th- there is a connection to a previous episode that they have already written. So it's the same writers uh, referencing mm-hmm. one of their earlier episodes. Um, lastly, the original air date was November 1st, 1993. All right, let's start on with the very first scene then, which is Maggie bringing Joel's parents to Sicily, Alaska right here. Yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking about the the very end of our last podcast episode. I had you and our guest Alberto try to guess what this episode would be about just, just from hearing the title, Birds of a Feather. And uh, Alberto guessed, you know, flight, something about flying. And already he's, his guess is not very far off because we've got Maggie's airplane flying over... Uh, very green mountains. So, you know, again, not a lot of snow, which uh, Miss Fleischman will will point out when she gets off the plane. Uh, You see their names pop up as the guest stars. Joanna Merlin plays Nadine Fleischman and David Margullies. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Margullies. He plays Herb Fleischman. I don't know if they ever say Herb in the episode, but I saw that in the credits. I've been writing his name down in my notes as Mr. F, which, uh, you know, Mr. Fleischman, but also Mr. F reminds me of that uh, Arrested Development storyline. Do you remember that? Mr. F. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> is that the one with, like, Charlize Theron? Like, yes. it involves her? Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> it's such a great <laughs> reveal. <laughs> Oh, man, I totally forgot about that. Uh, yeah, so we're getting these two guest stars playing Joel's parents. They're coming into town, and immediately off the bat, we can see the characteristics of them. 
the mother is a little bit more doting and the father is a little bit more critical uh, right there. And I like that you brought up the idea of flying and flight because I think that's going to be one of the recurring dialogues that happens. Uh, one of the themes is going to be about flying this episode. Hmm. Yeah, definitely in this storyline, I could see for sure. Maybe it plays a role in others as well. But um, yeah, that's a great little uh, piece of imagery um, that we're already setting up early on with uh, the parents flying in. As you said, we kind of quickly understand the characteristics of Joel's mom and Joel's dad. I would just add that his mom is very kind of chatty, as we'll see. Not, I mean, this is just the first scene, but you know, I think she's written in a way where she just kind of can go on and on talking about any subject. And Joel's father uh, doesn't say a whole lot, you know, but we do see a very important, um, I guess, interaction before the end of this scene as they're leaving Maggie's plane and hopping into Joel's truck to drive into town. Uh, Joel's dad uh, tells him like, oh, you know, better check out this rust on your tire well. You better get that fixed or else it's going to like spread and it'll, it'll get worse. And, uh, you know, it's just like a, a fatherly thing to sort of like, in a way, maybe undercut or criticize and be like, you know, you got to keep the, keep, um, be on top of this kind of thing. I actually didn't, I kind, actually don't know. Um, maybe they mention it in the episode, but, uh, it appears that Joel's dad is like a handyman. Is that, is that his profession? I gathered that he is a handyman, but like, honestly, he could be a lot of things. Yeah. Maybe they don't say it. Like he could be a plumber or. Yeah. Cause it looks like he's one of those people that just has like a good mindset on, uh, like dad stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I call that dad knowledge <laughs> right there. What do you like? <laughs> what I mean by that is like, when you know what like a notary is and you know how to like fix a toilet by just looking at it. That, that's like, you, you're starting to approach like dad knowledge yeah. right there. Yeah. And I think he's got one of those. So that's why it's hard to pinpoint, you know, it, it, does this come from like his personal life or does this come from a professional life? Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a moment later when, you know, uh, Nadine Fleischman is kind of going on and on about something. And she s mentions like to Marilyn that, they thought about her and uh, her and her husband thought about like moving Joel and the family, uh, you know, out of the city and like some somewhere else. I can't remember what they said, uh, but she was like, "Oh, it would have been such a pain. Like we would have had to find like a new house to live in, and and uh, Herb would have had to like put up flyers and stuff. Like word of mouth is very important for his line of work. I think she says something to that effect. So like, yeah, I don't know. I guess like a handyman." you know, gets recommendations from his customers to other, to new, new customers. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's a really good observation right there. Uh, do you want to stick with them or do you want to move on to the pretty much the only other, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This one diverges into another plot line and then there's the hauling and shelling plot line. Uh, do you want to jump to them or would you like to stay on this one? Hmm. Maybe we can go to hauling and Shelley since we haven't really talked about that. And I feel like most of the episode's going to revolve around Joel and his family, even if it does sort of split into two. Uh, but let's let's go into Shelley and Holling, since that's sort of like a secondary thing. Okay, so we open with Holling and Shelling at the break, and Holling brings in a package for Shelley from her mother. Um, I forgot her name. Tammy. Tammy. Yes, the Tamster. I think Shelley says calls her the Tamster. <laughs> 
Yeah, apparently she's in San Diego, which is coincidentally the they they bring up the city San Diego again oh. in the very next scene with Joel and his mother. Oh, because she's reading some book or something. Is that right? Yeah. It's really odd that I use San Diego twice. I tried to look into it to see if there's uh, anything special about San Diego pertaining to these plot lines, but mm. it's nothing that I can see. But anyway, uh, she has mailed Shelly and Holling a care package, and it has a lot of fun stuff in it. It's got like <laughs> a little troll thing for the baby to yeah. look at. And most importantly, her, I want to say it's her boyfriend. Right, Kenny. You rem- Do you Kenny. remember these characters in uh so that was from the episode. I remember their my mother, my sister. Yeah, yeah. I remember their faces. I just don't remember their names. Okay, the, yeah. It's uh, yeah. the thing about them. Uh, he has sent them a baseball glove. Nice, yeah. Uh, and this puts Holling a little maybe ill at ease. Actually, it was kind of hard to read Holling in this very first scene, um, but I think we'll understand why pretty quickly as we uh, continue down the storyline. Holling is kind of put ill at ease by this baseball and this glove. Um, Shelly's very excited about it all. But yeah, I think it was nice. I, you know, I pointed this out earlier. These are the same writers that wrote that episode, My Mother, My Sister. I do recall when we were recording the podcast for that episode, you know, it, it may not have been one of our favorite plot lines in that episode, but I did really like Tammy and Kenny for some reason. I thought they were a fun couple. And I was like, I really hope that we get to see them again. Then I looked up the credits and realized that we will never see them again in the series. Though I'm, at least I'm glad that they uh, that their characters are mentioned, even if we don't get to see them again. <laughs> well, that brings us to the next scene, which is where Chris is with two other extras that we don't we haven't been introduced to them yet. Mm. Uh, they're going to come a little bit more later, but he's going to get them drinks, and he's at the brick, and he approaches the bar and talks to Holling, and he's saying like, "Oh man, it's like." Space of all game that we're watching is great. <laughs> and Hauling divulges to Chris that he actually doesn't like baseball. Yeah. I think I like he he says, Can I unburden myself to you? Um, because Chris, as you said, super gung-ho, grabbing these beers for his for his pals at the bar. Chris is like, Man, there's nothing better than watching a man throw like a, a ball and someone cut like, you know, I don't know what he says, but I like how he's like uh, am I right, Holling, or am I right? Or am I right? And Holling's just like, <laughs> look, I can't. I don't know how to say this, but Holling is not a sportsman. He just does not doesn't like sports ball of any capacity. Though specifically, he doesn't like baseball. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, this passage from uh, John Green's book, The Fault in Our Stars, and it's always remained in my mind for some reason. It's not even like a huge point in the book, but um, the passage goes like this. The character Augustus says, one day I was just standing at the foul line throwing free throws at the North Central gym, just shooting from a rack of balls, and all at once, I couldn't figure out why I was methodically tossing a spherical object through a toroidal object. It seemed like the stupidest thing I could possibly be (laughs) doing. I started thinking about little kids putting a cylindrical peg through a circular hole and how they do it over and over again for months when they figure out how. And basketball was basically just a slightly more aerobic version of the same exercise. Yeah, I think it's also, maybe may have been from one of their podcasts, the uh, Dear Hank and John, where John said something like, no, I think it was Hank, because John is really into 
soccer, like uh, European football. Hank, not so much. Is Hank into sports? Uh, he, he strikes me as a fella <laughs> that uh, is probably not the biggest sports fan. And, you know, Hank is uh, also not very into poetry, and John is, like, big into poetry. But anyway, enough about their podcast. Uh, Hank, I think, on the podcast at one point said, like, Sports is all, isn't it all just the same thing over and over again? So he said something to that, yeah, to that effect. And what you just read, yeah, it's like throwing this ball again and again. I guess that's kind of what Hauling is. <laughs> that's his whole perspective on it. Is it. I think it's also in the scene where Hauling is saying, um, you know, he's, he's worried because his son or, I don't know, do they know if it's a boy or a girl? I've actually forgotten at this point, but, you know, his offspring may enjoy sports and Holling's not going to be interested at all, I guess, to, to, to do that with, with his son or his uh, child. But I find it hard to believe that, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Holling would, if his son enjoyed sports, I'm sure Holling would oblige him and just like do it anyway, play sports with, you know, throw a ball with his son. Yeah. This is where it kind of confuses and loses me uh, on this particular uh, plot line. Because I don't necessarily subscribe to what Augustus was saying in The Fault in Our Stars. I understand where the viewpoint is coming from, and I think it's very eloquent. But I also think that sports provides an outlet for people to connect with other individuals. It's a bonding uh, ritual between uh, not only family, but also friends. Uh, It's a place where people can come together and healthily compete with others. There's lots of pros to it. And also... Just like we talked about, there's a lot of cons to it as well. But that's the thing. It's just a thing that can connect other individuals. Other hobbies can do that as well. So when Chris is saying like, oh man, like he's going to be missing out on this, um, what is the words they use? Heavy bonding ritual. It's like, yeah, he'll miss out on like this particular aspect. But that doesn't mean that like they won't be able to connect on other things. Yeah. And I think it's kind of crazy that it took them the entire episode to realize that. To explain that point. In the end, it's like, oh, there are other things that Hauling will be able to connect with uh, his child with. You know, there's still, I guess, a lot of this plot line to talk through before we get to the end of it. But um, I thought that this plot was going to be more focused on inclusion and exclusion and Something you just said is sort of like sports can be largely like a bonding experience for friends and family and people. But I feel like by the end of this, by the end of this episode, it's more of just like hauling, just being like baseball dumb. There's other cool things. (laughs) You know, it's not really about inclusion or exclusion by the end. Yeah, I mean, I was on hauling side the entire time. (laughs) I, I don't know if this was like something in which like, Maybe an audience member could have actually been on the other townsfolk side, but there's something in, uh, indescribably cool about knowing what you like and what you don't like. I'm not saying there's something cool about being stubborn <laughs> and being narrow-minded. It's just like this is something that Holling knows to the core of his being that he does not enjoy, and he does not want to change his identity nor force himself to change in order to please others. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of nice characteristic of Holling. Uh, but before we get off the scene, there's only like one little tiny line that I wanted to analyze. And it's where Chris says that, you know, when his father wasn't uh, beating him, apparently, he would be shagging flies, which again is another imagery of flying. Mm. And shagging flies, I'm guessing, is some lingo that means like, you know, throwing a curveball, like throwing a ball, catching a ball or something. Yeah, pretty much. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. We can move to the next portion of this storyline. Let's see. That would be uh, Chris dissing Hauling on air. He, I mean, he doesn't call, he doesn't name Hauling by name, but he, uh, he says like, I met a guy yesterday who said he didn't care for baseball. Can you believe that? What a loser, you know, like. I find that so weird. I find that <laughs> uncharacteristic right. of Chris. Who is an individual who you can usually see, what did they say last episode? Like, I think the, li- the line was like, this is a fellow that can see like both ends of the street or like both ends of the road. Wait, maybe he even says in this episode. I, they're getting a little bit blurred. But regardless, uh, Chris seems to be an open-minded fella and it's weird that he's dissing his friend over K-Bear. Yeah. And and later, Hauling will go to Shelly. It almost seems like Hauling is, uh, well, he's, he's unpacking on Shelly and letting her know that uh, he's not a big fan of sports or baseball. And it almost feels like Hauling thinks Shelly might have his back, um, which is odd because we know that mm-hmm. Shelly is really into hockey. And she's very shocked to hear about Holling's distaste for sports. Like she's keeping it in, but you can tell from her eyes, just from her expression, that Holling is bombing big time. Like he's telling her, you know, he doesn't like sports. And I think he's mistakenly inferring that she's on his side, but she's, I can tell she, she doesn't like what he's saying. Yeah, and this is where I thought they were going in one direction, but it, it just kept sticking on the uh, same direction that I was uh, touching upon earlier, where Shelly is concerned that Holling is not going to be able to connect with his son through this ritual of sports. I thought that they were going to go in a direction where uh, something important to Shelly, hockey, for example, is something that she prioritizes. It's something that she cares about. And when Hauling doesn't share that same priority, it insults her or it makes her feel belittled or, or something of that nature. I thought I was going to get into a conversation about what's important to us, like the broader scheme idea. And instead, it just kept with the narrow idea of being like, I, oh, well, I can't believe, like, what are you going to do when he, like, he wants to... Play ball. Specifically baseball. Yeah, it's kind of focused on right. that. I see what you're saying. Like, it could have been, like, more about hauling, seeing, even if he doesn't like baseball, he could see that other people, you know, it's a big part of their lives. And, you know, earlier in the scene, we didn't talk about this, but Chris does mention that hauling, even if he doesn't like baseball, keeps track of the score. He always has it on the TV in case, like, a, a patron is in the bar and wants to know the score you know, Holling will be able to tell them like he's been in the bar all day. The game is on. So, you know, there is a part of Holling that regardless of disliking the sport, he obliges it and he like lets it happen and uh, is is happy to have people enjoy it. Uh, it's just not for him, I guess. Right. Uh, and they harp on that a little bit more in the next scene, which is going to be between Holling and Shelley at their home where Shelly stresses about their, you know, future child. She's like, you know, uh, do you remember like that other guy that we knew? He's such a dweeb, but because he can play baseball, he can hang out on any bar on this planet. Like she's associating this skill with being able to uh, socialize, well, which is like. So sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, no, 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 it's okay. That, that dweeb guy she's talking about is Fleischman. She says uh, 
he's such a dweeb. And then at one point he started coaching the basketball team. He plays golf. So now he can walk into any bar and hang out with people and he, he'll be the cool guy. That's such a, that's still like a really strange line to me. Cause even if he didn't do that, I still think like Joe, Joe lived in New York. He seemed to be doing perfectly <laughs> fine walking into bars. Like, I think that's such a strange, uh, characterization of him, well, but. Uh, well, let whatever. me play the soundbite from this scene. I'll probably cut it around because um, it's a, it's a long scene, but we can kind of hear Shelley's perspective, what what she's talking about here. You said yourself, it's only a game. Don't you think I don't know that, Holling? I know that, but it's not just about me anymore. What about our kid? What's it going to be like for him when he's seven or something, and all his little crew is out the worse? He won't even have a crew. They'll be swinging bats and knocking balls through people's windows. Where's Pooper going to be? Playing jacks? Skipping rope? Collecting stamps like Cousin Donnie? It's the guys, Holling! You gotta know that! What do dudes talk about? They talk about the Dodgers, the Seal Skins, BRAs and stuff. I know it's just a stupid, little stupid game, Holling. But what else is there? So Shelley's worry is that their child will be left out uh, from friends and will be bullied for not liking sports, which is surely that's possible. But also, you know, I'm sure you can have a lot of friends that don't play sports. No, I don't know. I guess, you know, Charles, something I didn't think about, like uh, life in such a small town, regardless of playing sports or not, that kid's probably not going to have a lot of friends just because there's not going to be a lot of people his age. But... Um, but yeah, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's the uh, least okay. of, of Shelley's worries. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing that you brought up, like the size of a small town, but I think that's actually working inverse. So oftentimes in those like, like Friday night lights town, like those small Texas towns that makes it a whole event whenever it's a high school football game, mm-hmm. like the whole town comes in. That's a community thing. That's entirely different, okay. in my opinion, <laughs> compared to like an individual relationship between you and another person. Um, those towns make their entire identities be known with the sport in hand. Uh, we know that Sicily is not a town that does that, uh, despite what last week showed <laughs> with their flying fishing thing. It's not like it's a town that like uh, really prioritizes sports. But that that is a neat observation that you brought up. I, I did not think about that. I also think it's cool that Shelley you know, flat out admits, yeah, sports are dumb. Like, this is a stupid, little stupid game, is what she says. Don't you think I know that? I think actually she says, don't you think I don't know that? But um, you, you get what she means. Regardless of it being dumb or not, she sees that there's these this whole implication of being included or excluded. That's her worry. All right, that brings us to the next scene, which is them back at the brick again. It's Chris, Maurice, and to the two extras that I talked about, I didn't catch their names. Uh, Lee, do you know their names? I know that one of them is called Mike, and I was looking at um, Moose Chick. Uh, She writes that this is like the second extra this season that is called Mike. It's a different guy, but he's also (laughs) named Mike. But then there's this other guy who kind of looks maybe like more native. I'm not... Maybe he's not even, I'm not sure what his ethnicity is, but he looks really cool. I I don't know his name. Yeah, uh, really interesting guy. And what's happening in the scene is two things. One, they're watching a game and they're kind of musing about what's happening here. 
Maurice says something that's very Maurice-like. He says, like, can't even call this baseball anymore. Free agency ruined the damn game. It's like such an old man yell at clouds thing. It actually reminds me of um, the two particular films. One is Moneyball, uh, written by Aaron Sorkin. And the other one is Trouble with the Curve, which had like uh, Clint Eastwood. Hmm. Are, are you familiar with uh, Trouble with the Curve, Lee? I'm not, no. So I know that we've seen Moneyball together, which yeah. is... Uh, for the audience, Moneyball is about like what happens whenever you're looking toward uh, something that's not foreseeable in the eye. They use sabermetrics in order to mathematically calculate like the potential in baseball players, what uh, is hidden beneath the surface. So oftentimes they'll judge a baseball player to be like, oh, he throws really weird. I don't want to uh, pick up this player. But that actually doesn't matter. The stats don't lie. He's able to do X thing why amount of times that's why he's a valued player trouble with the curve is the opposite of that so it's got clint eastwood trying to go against that system he's like a baseball scout and he's the whole premise is him saying like nah man like my eyeballs and just like my gut (laughs) instinct that's what you need screw the mathematicians and all that like elite (laughs) bogus ivy league jargon nah baseball is like that's the gut that's like man stuff right there. That's like the whole entire thing. <laughs> They're two diametrically opposed ideas that came out around the same time, like the early 2010 decade. Wow. I find that fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, when did Trouble with the Curve come out? That's kind of funny that they're yeah, very diametrically opposed, as you said, very opposite. Yeah, um, <laughs> that just reminded are, me. Both are pretending to be the right way, I guess, <laughs> or they believe themselves to be correct. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, like I'm sure you can guess, I obviously think Moneyball's much more romantic <laughs> and a much more idealistic and better viewpoint. But yeah, I just thought that that went funny along with Maurice. But anyway, what's also happening in the scene is that they're setting up a pool and they're trying to see like everyone chips in a certain amount of money. And based on like how the score ends, like that's the number, whoever has that number, uh, that's how they determine who wins the pool. Yeah. And uh, Holling won the pool, which when that happened, I actually laughed. And not that it was funny, but I just thought that this was so clever and such an awesome moment in this story. The person who hates or despises baseball wins all of the money. And of course, uh, Chris and Mike and all the other uh, guys at the bar are just like so let down. They're just like, dang it. Why did Holling have to win? Like he doesn't even like this sport. <laughs> I expected. I don't know where where it would go after this, but you know, it doesn't. There's not a huge implication with Holling winning the pool. I think in the next scene he just gives away the money. But yeah, we see him give it away in the next scene, which is again right back at the bar, and they're kind of a uh, teasing Holling, you know, just saying some stuff to him right in front of him, and that's where Holling decides, like, you know what? This is my bar, and I can do with it what I want, and I'm tired of having to watch baseball and dealing with y'all teasing me about it. Uh, Here's your money, and get out. They, like, forces Mike to take the money, uh, and Mike, like, is not going to take it, but begrudgingly does, and he's like, I'm never coming back here again. Screw this place. Would you have taken the money? No, I would not have. I would have given it to Shelly, at least, because she wanted it for the... uh, for like the new baby oh, carriage I meant and things like, like if that. You were, if you were in Mike's shoe. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have taken it. No, I would have given it to Shelly. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. Yeah, it seems like 
I don't, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that. I was like, what I would have done. I would have definitely just been like, I'm going to leave, but I'm also not taking the money. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'll get out if you're fine, but yeah, <laughs> you're not going to make me take this money. What's up with the hippity hoppity? That's like, they do like a little uh, nursery rhyme. That's that's how they tease hauling. I just tried to Google it. I'm not really sure if it's from something, but. Uh, I don't really know either. I, I'm not entirely too sure on that. Uh, listeners, if you know a little bit more detail on that, maybe you can help me and Lee out. Urban Dictionary says that uh, hippity hoppity means having wealth or being very rich. Though I wouldn't trust Urban Dictionary. They have like so many different meanings for anything. If uh, yeah, None and also of it, matters. it probably got morphed. Like the the definition has probably changed since 30 years ago when this aired. Yeah, definitely. Um, like no one would have thought, let me think off the top of my head. What's like a, what's like a meme saying? Nobody would have thought like absolute banger would mean what they meant 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I kind of like, I think I'm more, more like Holling's performance in the scene over the writing. It's a decent little monologue, but I think I think I like it more because of his performance here, which is really good. But what he's saying is, um, I wrote down some of the the buzzwords here. You think a man's a man just because he wears team colors and like drinks beer in front of the TV? He says the sands of time are dribbling through the hourglass, and basically he's saying like there's so much knowledge available to us through this TV. Why are we just like doing baseball? Why don't we watch, you know, some whales or, uh, I don't know, like other like pygmies or something like that. He, he lists a bunch of international exotic things. Yeah, definitely. It goes in line with what Holling is about. He seems like a, you know, like a very educated person, uh, at the stage, even though, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't remember the the plot line of it, but like he like didn't graduate elementary school or something. Yeah, he didn't graduate. Oh, you might be right. Even elementary. I know he like dropped out of school at a young age to just work because that was like his life back in the day. Yeah, yeah, like a Billy Madison episode. Uh, I remember that. (laughs) But learning curve. Yeah, we talked about that uh, again last episode too. But yeah, he does seem to be like someone who is interested in uh, more sophisticated, not necessarily sophisticated things, but just like. We know he likes hunting, but he's sort of like a reformed hunter, so he doesn't do that anymore. He's a photographer. Uh, he's got like a bit of a soft side too, you know. I guess he's a he's a dancer in one episode with uh, Marilyn when she's like picking him to be her dance partner. So yeah, there's that side to him. Well, in this scene, I also wanted to mention that at the end of the scene, after this guy Mike like is forced to take the money and has to leave the bar. We can see just on the faces of all the patrons at the bar, they seem a little uh, shameful that they excluded Hauling here and and they were sort of picking on him and now this is him retaliating. Uh, so I thought this was a nice little moment that fit into the sort of the theme of inclusion and exclusion. Though I don't think like the storyline really delivers at the end on that idea. It's more focused on other things, I think. Yeah, and if we get to the final scene, it's going to be between Holly and Shelly back at their place. And Shelly is telling him, like, you know, Holly, I was making a big fuss about this, but you're right. There's going to be other things that our child can connect with with you. It's going to be okay. Yeah, like she was actually really impressed with how he handled that situation and maybe impressed the wrong word. I, th- I think she was just really turned on by Holly, which is always a bit uncomfortable to see. 
But, um, you know, she just, she can see that Holling at least is uh, impassioned about, or he's, he's passionate about a lot of other things. So if it's not baseball, it's going to be something else and it's going to be something really cool. And we know that Holling is going to have his full heart behind it, whatever it is. He, there's there's other things that he loves and he'll be able to share with other people. Well, we do, I, I don't want to move on if there's more to talk about in this scene. Maybe, maybe there isn't, but we do see sort of a um, a sea change in the brick. Like they're not watching baseball anymore, but they are watching uh, other programming. It's actually pretty clever how they, how they set it up because we don't see the TV. We only see the patrons at the bar and they're talking about it as if it were sports. Can I move on? Can I play that? I'll play the yeah, soundbite yeah, yeah. of this. Yeah. yeah. Let me play let me play the soundbite. Believe the hand speed of that guy. This Pasquale, he can catch flies in midair with those reflexes. Hey, I got two words for you guys. Jackie Pepin. When he's on, it's a blur. <laughs> Jacques Pepin, that frog. <laughs> he wouldn't know a baby turnip from an artichoke if he bounced it off his skull. Yeah, what are you trying to say there, Owen, huh? The Italians got over to French when it comes to Julianne? Get a life, Stevens. Hey, Dino ain't even done yet. He's gonna be dropping Naoki all over the place after halftime. Hauling a couple more Cohen's for these guys, huh? Coming up, Chris. Look at that onion. Made mincemeat out of it in 20 seconds flat. Ah, yes. Actually, sorry, I just laughed out loud, but I do think it's funny how Chris is like, I mean, look at this guy. He's not even done yet. He's going to be dropping Yoki all over the place before halftime. It's like, <laughs> that's not how you watch a cooking show. But I think these guys, maybe they just miss baseball so much. Or I don't know, maybe they're just whatever. I think it's, uh, I guess if we're trying to tie it in with the end of the storyline, it's like, it doesn't matter what it is. You can connect with other people through a lot of shared interests. Yeah, right. You hit the hammer on the now. I think that's what they were trying to get through on this. Well, yeah, so... Thankfully, it's obviously not going to be a problem. They're they're fine. Holling's going to be fine. Shelly's going to be fine. Their child will will grow up fine. And I guess we won't ever see any baseball um, in the future of Northern Exposure, at least with with these characters. But um, we can put that to bed now and return to the beginning of the episode with Joel and his parents visiting. Should we do Nadine Fleischman, his mom? She has sort of her own storyline. Or should we do what sort of develops more with Joel and his father? Uh, we can do Nadine, but either way, we're going to have to talk about the scenes that they're together with first right? before we can even split off from them. But let's go with Nadine and let's tie it all the way back to the beginning scene, which is where they're having lunch. Yes, lunch, not dinner. They're having lunch <laughs> at Joel's place and Nadine is cooking a chicken and again, it's another imagery of birds. Yeah, that's a good point. She's baking this chicken. I think also like later in the scene, actually it's a different scene, but we'll see more birds with Nadine. Forgot to mention in that very first scene when um, Maggie flies Joel's parents into town, Joel actually like steps aside as his parents are like in the truck. He goes to Maggie and he's like, hey, you want to come over like for lunch or for dinner just to hang out? I thought that was pretty cool, um, but I think now we know why is like Joel is, is maybe a little uncomfortable with his parents, so he would like like a friend to be there to to help him out. Maggie is like, no, nah, I don't want to. I'm not going to be in your hair. Like, spend time with your parents. I kind of wish we got a scene with Maggie in there, but um, I guess it just wasn't in the cards. Yeah, I think it could have been really interesting if Maggie was going to be in there, but yeah, I think that predominantly 
Joe's more afraid, or not afraid, just like annoyed with his father than his mother. Because his father in this mm. scene is uh, critiquing about his toilet. He's talking about all these things that Joe has not done yet. He foresees him as being ill-prepared and just not being on top of things. Uh, his mother, on the other hand, is just really concerned with cooking the chicken. And she says a really interesting line when she's uh, just constantly blabbering and chit-chatting. She says, you know, I used to cook these beans down to a mash. Now, everything is al dente, and you know, I think they're right. Al dente is a cooking method, particularly for like pastas and stuff. Whenever you cook it just enough where it's soft, but it's also still hard to bite into. Uh, it's definitely not mush. And I think what they're trying to say in this scene is that instead of smothering something or just constantly talking and seeing what sticks to the wall, it's better to have brevity and be succinct to mm. communicate and express your ideas. So essentially, clarity. Yeah, that's a good that's a good little connection there because there is a lot about brevity and uh, you know stillness, I guess, in this episode, things like that. I never thought about comparing it to al dente, sort of the culinary version of limiting the amount of time you cook something, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's spot on there. Yeah, and as they have the lunch over there, Nadine looks out the window and she spies an eagle's shadow flying over the house. Very strange bird shadow. It's a special effects shot um, where they like, I guess, comped in like a fake shadow of a bird flying over. Very large bird over like Joel's lawn or something because she's looking out the window. Yeah, at first I thought like, is this a UFO? I was like, this episode is getting <laughs> very weird, very fast. Um, but uh, I think we're supposed to understand it's a bird by because it kind of does look like a bird by the end of the uh, the little special effects shot. Joel does mention the B&B &B in town, which is, I mean, again, this has got to be Ron and Eric's bed and breakfast. Mr. Fleischman, uh, his dad is like, no, no, no. Why, why would we do that? We want to stay with you. So I, I just wanted to point that out that we get another little bed and breakfast mention this episode. Yeah. And it's also, you know, another moment in which Joel is trying to offload his parents. And we can see a little bit more of that tension in the next scene, which is, uh, I think like more time has passed. They got the lamps on at the place and they're uh, bringing the plates over to the dishwasher. And this is actually, in my opinion, a really well-acted scene. Yeah. What's happening here, let me paint you a picture with my words, is that Joel and his father are sitting in two separate chairs and the lamps are coming between them. That's basically the things that separate them. And there's lots of pregnant pauses as they talk about a complicated procedural subject for the heart. It's something that his father innocuously brings up. He says like, you know, what do you think about it? What are your thoughts about this operation? And he, there's just constant pauses throughout the conversation. And Joel says, uh, the operation, uh, the subject, uh, it can mean a lot of things. Like it's complicated. And it just keeps going back and forth between them. And I got to praise them. I think both actors are doing a really great job on this scene. Yeah. Strong subtext in the writing. And, uh, yeah, I thought David, is his name David Margulies? Uh, I thought he was pretty good, especially like in this scene, in the very first scene we see him, I thought he doesn't say a lot, but he does some really great, just like restrained acting and just seeing how 
he doesn't he doesn't want to say too much to Joel at, at first. I think it's a really, really great play. I think it's pretty good throughout this episode. And something else that I really like about this scene that you're describing, I believe it's just like a single shot. Like you said, there's lots of pauses and the camera doesn't move. It really like lingers on them for a long time. Uh, it's almost kind of a subjective point of view as if we're like, um, or I guess, sorry, obje- objective maybe. Uh, I-, I don't know how you describe it, but it's like <laughs> the camera is like, it's like further away peering in on them. So I guess it's sort of point of view like, but more of just like w- watching them from afar. There's some like uh, maybe a table or something obstructing, not obstructing, but in between. Them. Yeah. Go ahead. It, yeah. It, it makes it more like a stage play yes. right here is what you're trying to say. Yeah. Because ordinarily in film, you can edit and cut and there's all sorts of angles and you can come in close up, wide shot, whatever. On this one, like you were saying, it just stays right there at a particular angle. And when you can see the chairs, it's almost like the camera is placed on top of the table mm-hmm. and it, it just doesn't move. It just lets the scene play out. Uh, very wise directing choice. Yeah, I think it it really serves this scene you just described, but it also serves sort of the next moment that's going to happen because we linger so long that Joel and his dad are like, hold up, where's mom? Like, where is Nadine? Where has she been? And they run out to the porch, or I think Joel does, and he finds his mom standing on the porch, staring out into the night, almost like amazed by how still and quiet it is here. Yeah, she is amazed at the isolated nature of Alaska. And she had commented on that whenever she flew in. She's like, oh, it's so isolated out here. I would have loved had they had done this. Uh, this is just like a framing thing. And I've, <laughs> I've gotten really addicted to, uh, to looking at these cinematography tricks, which is where uh, a subject would be framed uh, between like a pole or a pillar separating him from the other subject. And it's to introduce conflict. And or like isolation between the subjects. Uh, what I mean by this is that when Joel goes outside to see Nadine, there is a pillar, like a you know, some sort of a pole that's holding up their house, their roof. But he and Nadine are on the same side of it. And I thought it would have been really neat if Joel <laughs> would have been on the right side of it. Nadine was on the left side of it. Yeah, it's very obvious when we <laughs> you look at the shot. You're like, okay, they're totally trying to do that framing technique. But I'm a huge sap for that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, this time they're on the same side. There's probably a thousand reasons, I guess. Like maybe they just it just worked better for the angle. But uh, I do like your your thought there of maybe separating them a bit because Joel, I feel like, never really understands what his mom is going through in this episode. Definitely a lot of confusion. Joel is worried for his mom, though she seems to be okay. Uh, I think even by the end of the episode, he doesn't really get what she's going through, but that's okay, I guess. Yeah, uh, she's mostly concerned with this bird that's outside. (laughs) That's what's drawing her out into there. And the next scene that's going to be involved in Aideen is at Joel's office where Joel is attending to a patient and his father is... Doing something with a like a bench or a chair. Like he's a, like fin- yeah, it's like a, he's, yeah. He's fixing like one of the seats in the waiting room. Yeah, and Nadine comes into the office and she meets with Marilyn. She just came from Ruth Ann's store where she has a bunch of items that she's getting for friends, along with a box of Cheerios, and she starts munching on them. And Marilyn says like, "Hey, my aunt did the same thing too." She's like, "Oh, really? Your aunt? Yeah, my <laughs> aunt was like an eagle. What? Like an eagle?" And then that gets into the conversation about like maybe Nadine's an eagle spirit. 
maybe she wants to go check out some of the eagles and they uh they leave yeah i actually thought it was pretty funny <laughs> about the cheerios thing you know marilyn's just like oh yeah i had an aunt who did the same thing she would snack on cheerios and nadine is like are you kidding me your your aunt did the exact same thing like she was so surprised by this <laughs> i don't know why that was so exciting but the eagle thing is pretty interesting like the eagle spirit and i it's really funny. Marilyn's just like, I'm okay. I can leave work right now and just go show you some eagles. Like Marilyn just leaves <laughs> her job, and I don't remember. I don't think Joel says anything about it. But yeah, she's just gone. She's like, let's go watch some eagles. Forget this job. Yeah. <laughs> so that brings them to uh, the next scene, which is where they're outside. It's a very great wide shot, mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, showing off the beauty of Alaska. And it's where Marilyn talks about the spirit of eagles, particularly one called, do you know how to pronounce it? Yuixa Yanatagni? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the subtitle's pretty crazy, but I think Marilyn says Yukatangi. Yukatangi. Yeah. Actually, I got a soundbite, so I can play that real fast. So, and you just come out here and, uh, what, you just take it all this beauty? Uh, sit, think, and sometimes... Uh, well, you think we're a- really going to see some eagles today? Because nobody is going to believe me. What does that mean, anyway, to be an eagle spirit? Well, number because one... Because it's funny, when you said that about my being an eagle, I have always had a thing about eagles. The eagle wasn't always the eagle. Pardon? The eagle, before he became the eagle, was Yukatangi, the talker. Oh. This is a legend? Yukatangi talked and talked. It talked so much, it heard only itself. Not the river, not the wind, not even the wolf. Oh. The raven came and said, the wolf is hungry. If you stop talking, you'll hear him. The wind too. And when you hear the wind, you'll fly. So he stopped talking? Mm Mm-hmm. And became its nature, the eagle. The eagle soared. And its flight said all it needed to say. Yeah, it's, uh, that's just like really obvious subtext right there. <laughs> it's so on the nose. It's so obvious that I really wanted to believe that I thought Marilyn was just making it up to like sort of get a message across to Nadine. To, to like, this is Marilyn's way of saying like, you should talk less. You know, she just makes <laughs> up this story. But no, it it uh it in fact like you know this it's brought up again later. I think at the end of the episode. So I think it is like a real at least in the uh, the Bible of Northern Exposure. This is like a real sort of myth from uh, Marilyn's tribe, maybe or yeah. It's, it's just uh, it's just so <laughs> on the nose, man. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that brings us to the next scene where <laughs> Nadine is by herself. She's still hanging around in that area. And it's actually kind of a trippy scene because she's having uh, oh, voices yeah. speak to her right here. I'm presuming that these are like the voices that like she heard back in New York. Like these are common occurrences um, over there. But now that she's out here, they're just whispers. Yeah, it starts as like, I think it's like sounds of office, like in the office where she might work, then like the sounds of a busy New York street. And then sort of almost suddenly, it seems like, well, the sounds go away, you know, it starts to become silence. It almost seems like 
Nadine is controlling it in a way, but I, I don't know. I wasn't sure how to read it, but yeah, she's able to like push away this noise. Yeah, and then when we see her for the next scene, she's still out there. She spends a majority of the episode just out at this place. Right. And this is where like the craziest thing in the episode happens. I did not think they were actually <laughs> going to do this. Uh, Hold on, I don't... I don't think this is the craziest thing, but it is very crazy. It's pretty crazy because they actually shoot <laughs> yeah. it. Nadine, like, goes toward the edge of the cliff and missteps. And then, like, she falls and they show the fall. Like, that's the craziest part to me. <laughs> yeah, well, she's like, yeah, there's a lot of VFX happening. She's <laughs> straight up falls off. We see, like, sort of in a wider shot, a body falling off this cliff. And then we also see her, I think, like, in close-up with, like, wind flying past her. It's obviously, I think, a fake background. And then she does, like, this weird sort of, like, glide where her her body, like, flies and she lands and she's, like, fine. Yeah, I, I think it would have been better if they didn't show that. Like, they didn't show her falling. We just inferred that something happened. Yeah. And then she talks about it. This isn't the first time that we've had, like, a flying person in Northern Exposure. There is... I think his name's Bob, the flying man, you know? Mm -hmm. And he does fly in an episode, but the way they do that is really clever. It's like Joel is driving his car or he's about to hop into his truck and he says, all right, Bob, I'll see you like later. And Joel like hops in his car and he starts driving and it's this unbroken shot. We're following Joel driving uh, for, you know, a couple blocks. When he gets out of the car, uh, Bob is there inexplicably. And he's like, you know, panting, like he maybe had just like jogged. But what happened? He's like, he flew alongside Joel. Do you remember that yeah, sort of yeah. sequence? Yeah. So that's an example of like, we understand that they're flying, but we don't have to literally see this pretty, pretty poor VFX, but also just really wacky scenario, I guess. Yeah. I think that's, that's <laughs> just like a really crazy one right there. Um, I want to. I want to also point out, like at the beginning of this scene, when Nadine is just kind of like walking around in nature, she first she sees like a little baby deer, and she's like, "Ooh, this is cool." And then she hears like an eagle. She sees like this very VFX eagle flying around, and she's like, "Oh, holy crap! That's an eagle! I gotta go see this." So she's like distracted <laughs> by this eagle. So she leaves the deer and like jump falls off a cliff. Yeah. Uh, she survives the cliffs, though, um, surprisingly, <laughs> yeah, because fine, she, yeah. yeah, she makes her way back into Joel's place. Um, she has just been missing for like, I'm pretty right. sure it's just one day, but it, because <laughs> but so it feels many like things, a lot. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a lot of days based on the way that it's shot, like just a sequence of events. But uh, yeah, she shows up and. Obviously, both Joel and his father are distraught. They're saying like, "Oh, you pr you have a concussion." You're talking about like how much you enjoyed it. Like, what are you talking about? This is insane. <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting like point of view shot from Nadine's point of view, looking onto Joel and his father as they're like questioning her. Mm -hmm. It's like it's not a fisheye lens, but it's kind of I think it's sort of a wider lens. It just looks kind of strange because they're like both Joel and his dad are pretty close up to the camera. Because that's like Nadine's face, her point of view. And they're just like questioning her. And I guess it's supposed to seem like maybe disorienting because, you know, maybe she seems a bit disoriented. But I think she's fine. Like she, maybe it's a little like nerve wracking to her. I think physically she's fine. She might just be like a little shook from having uh, 
just flown. You know, she's never done that before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, that is a really good shot that you're describing right there. I do remember that one. It's a neat creative choice. Yeah, it's like an interesting, it's like a different, a different um, shot that than you would normally see, I guess. Right. And Joel puts her to bed or he thinks he does because he goes back into her room and she's actually up and about looking at this uh, camel hair coat. Yeah, it's Manny's camel coat. It's like... Uh, his Uncle Manny. His Uncle Manny from Cottage for Uncle Manny. I, you know what? Did they write that episode? Let's see. They did not. That was Jeff Melvoin uh, who wrote the last couple episodes we watched. But a reference to Cottage for Uncle Manny from season four, um, Manny's camel coat. Uh, and his mom is like, uh, Joel's mom is, I guess she's like brushing it or maybe trying to like clean it in a way. And Joel is still worried for his mom. He said, I like that. He says, uh, Jewish women from Queens don't fly. I'm serious, <laughs> mom. Like this is like, you're not, you can't fly. This is not, you, I want to make sure you're okay. But she kind of like, you know, shushes him and like gives him this coat. And he's like, wow, this is uncle Manny's coat. Um, yeah, I think I got a soundbite for this. <sighs> Manny's coat. What, honey? It's just, you know, Manny's gone, and, and I've got his coat. Uh-huh. I mean, when you think about it, basically, that's it. You know, all this, you're right, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're right. Boom. I mean, suddenly you're wearing a dead man's coat. Fits you nicely. Don't you see, though? This was Manny's. This is Dad's younger brother. His younger brother. Joel, shh. I never did that enough for you, did I? I guess this soundbite also kind of ties into the storyline we haven't got to yet about Joel and some, you know, some arguments, uh, some frustrations between Joel and his father. And he's sort of working this out now through this coat from Uncle Manny. But... At the end there, like we get sort of Nadine's hushing Joel and she says, like, I should have done that more to you when you were younger. What does she she says something like that? Yeah. So it's just going back to that idea that, you know, instead of talking, you need to listen. You need to understand what the other individual is going through, which is, of course, going to tie back into Joel's plot line with his father. But it, she's just using the parable of the eagle with her with with her child joel and trying to explain to him that like you know less is more you know that's the uh, epiphany i got here for apparently my one day in alaska <laughs> yeah it's small but uh it's like that's her that's her like conclusion of her arc here and uh it does i guess it sort of serves to um to, to sort of push joel in a certain direction as well I guess it's more the, the the coat more than anything. I guess the completion of Nadine's arc also sort of like ushers the completion of Joel's arc. Yeah. I mean, it's a nice little thing because like obviously it reminds them of the mortality of uh, your parents being like, you know, like one day it's Uncle Manny's coat and the next day I'm wearing his coat right there. It teaches you a lot about forgiveness and, you know, seeing the forest from the trees trying to take off from there right but yeah you want to hop into the final plot line involving the father let's do it all right so back to mr herb fleischman mr f mr f we talked about i think the last time we saw him 
when we were talking is basically he's like uh, fixing up some chairs and stuff in Joel's office, like that bench maybe. Mm -hmm. And it's also in this scene uh, when he's fixing these benches and stuff, Joel is seeing like a, there's a patient there who has this rash and Mr. Fleischman is like, um, oh, that's pretty bad rash there. You better, uh, you know, you should use this. Uh, he says some sort of like specific salve. It's like, you should use this. It'll clear it up like right away. It'll help out, help that out for you. And then Joel walks out and he's like, all right, patient, let's, let's do this. Let me check out your rash. And the patient's like, oh no, I think I'm good actually. Your dad just told me like about this salve. I'm going to try that out. And understandably, Joel is a little peeved by this, you know, the salve may alleviate some of the symptoms and the pain, but I think Joel says something like, why don't you come in my office? That way I can make sure you're not like, you don't have like an infection or something like it could be more, could be more complicated. Yeah. This is a common motif that's happening between Joel and his father and what the relationship is because his father is somebody that's repairing a lot of Joel's items right here. He's repairing the mm. ceiling. He's repairing this desk. He was telling him to repair the car and the toilet. And that ties into what his father is prescribing to Joel's patients. He's giving them like a Band-Aid solution that seemingly fixes the problem immediately, but there's underlying issues that they might not understand that they also need to delve into. So while he is correctly fixing all of these different appliances and tools, I'm not saying he's doing that improperly. It's just that like, that's not the thing that needs mending. Uh, the thing that needs mending is their relationship. You have to look a little bit deeper. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. There, you know, I guess like Mr. Fleischman is trying to help in his way by, repairing all these little spots. Like later we'll talk about, uh, we talked about like the plumbing in Joel's house later. It's like some problem with the roof, but I think you put it pretty strongly right there. There there's something else that's, that needs more repairing. And it's not something that you can do just with like the work of a handyman or even from, you know, medicine or something. This is like maybe more psychological or social, uh, that uh, this problem. Right. Uh, though the rest of the townsfolk are taken in with his father because, uh, you know, that gentleman right there was like, yeah, that, uh, that, that ointment worked. And later on, they're going to be at the brick where it's Joel and his father, along with Ruth Ann and Maurice. And his father's able to impress Ruth Ann and Maurice with his, uh, technical wherewithals. He's telling him like, oh no, you got to use like this type of cement in the concrete mix. Uh, you got to get it at this stage before you do all this stuff with it yada 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 point being is that like his father isn't a grouch to everybody other people are seeing like a different perspective of him and right. they uh they respect him yeah also in this scene he kind of like digs into joel uh he says something like you know if it wasn't for me joel would have failed his anatomy course i had to like coach him through that whole course um and joel's like oh brother like come on like sure dad you're right but you know, I'm the doctor. I'm the doctor here. Uh, Joel Joel walks away. I think it's pretty cool as he's like stepping away. He he brushes past Dave, and Dave says, "Must be really nice having your father up to visit." And it's just like more salt on the wound, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's just another demonstration that like his father is not like controlling is not the word, but also like 
he's just not letting Joel, uh, well, why don't we just use this analogy? He's not letting Joel fly for himself. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that brings us to the next scene, which is at Ruth Ann's store. And again, Ruth Ann has taken the advice of Joel's father by uh, going for uh, not necessarily like a shortcut, but just like something that Joel himself did not prescribe. And Joel freaks yeah. out and he says like, no, like that is not going to cure your symptom. Oil wintergreen is not what you need. You need what I'm about to prescribe to, with you. I'm a doctor. He's not a doctor. You have to listen to me. Yeah. Oil of wintergreen is going to like help her pain or something. But he says you have DJD, degenerative joint disease. Basically says like, you're not going to get better. I know like at a certain old age, like your body just starts falling apart. And he's like, listen, Ruthann, like this doesn't, like you can't really fix this with oil of wintergreen. This is a serious disease. You need to see me. We need to like make sure everything's going okay with your body. And she, you know, begrudgingly is like, oh, okay, fine. Cause he's like, like see me at three o'clock or something. Like we're going to do this. And so she's going to do that. But, um, but yeah, he's, he's getting pretty fed up. I think the next time we see Joel, I want to say this is like when he when he confronts his dad, right? Yeah, this is where he goes and meets with his father who's um, on the ladder fixing up his roof. And he's saying like, you know, I, I don't want you talking with any of my patients. No one in this town for that matter. Don't give them anything, not even a cough drop. And uh, I, I like what Joel is saying here. And I've talked about this before on the season where Joel takes his job very seriously. Joel is saying like, it's a felony what you're doing. You're writing off of my reputation and using that to prescribe your own things. But I'm the doctor, and you have to trust my judgment. You can't just go around me uh, right there. So he talks about that with his father, and they just get into it. And eventually it leads to a physical altercation where they, they kind of do like a, you know, a little bit of a tussle. And then Joel angrily storms off. Yeah, like they're fighting over – well. You know, Joel's like, look, like, get down from that ladder. I need to talk to you about this. You're, th everything you're doing is like undermining my relationship with my patients. It demonstrates your complete lack of regard for me. So that's, that's what he says to his father. And, um, you know, his dad's like, whatever, like, sure, whatever, fine. Like, you're, I, I forget, like, what exactly, basically, they get to this point. Whereas dad's like, you got a hole in the roof. You don't want me to like finish this job here. I'm like coming here. I'm going to start what I finish. And Joel's like, I don't care. Like let it rain, let it snow. Let there be like a deluge in my house. Like, please stop trying to fix that. I didn't ask you to fix it for me. And Joel goes for the chisel um, that his dad is using, which is, that sounds pretty dangerous. Chisel's pretty sharp. <laughs> Though thankfully no one gets cut. Uh, Joel, as you said, he storms off. But not before he like knocks over the ladder. That's the big kind of stunt in this scene. The ladder that uh, his dad was standing on. Dad gets off the ladder. They tussle about over this chisel. And Joel like knocks over the ladder. And uh, that's kind of what snaps them out of this fight. Which is kind of silly obviously. But they were, you know, they were angry enough to, to let it go on for as long as it did. Ladder falls over. Kind of knocks them out of this uh, fight. And Joel... I guess can't take it. He just gets out of there. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously, you can tell there's something more going on beneath the surface. It's again, going into that theme of uh, listening. They're mm. not listening to one another. 
And we can see this carry on to the next scene involving Joel, which is where he snaps at Marilyn, where he says, like, you know, I'm looking for this file, hiding it, and now I have to play hide-and-seek all the time. And it turns out he just wasn't really paying attention because yeah. it was just right up top of the pile. It's I like this a lot. He's like, Marilyn, will you please show me where you hid Miss LM's chart? And, like, she's not hiding any charts, you know. He's just, like, really – he's in a terrible mood. She, like, walks in the office and just, like, you know, picks up one of these, like, folders off of Joel's desk. It was right on his desk. He, like, misplaced it in a stack somewhere. Uh, he's obviously in a terrible mood. And Marilyn is, like, going to talk with him for a second to try to, like, feel him out. She can guess that he had a fight with his dad. She's like, you must have had a fight with your dad. And um, I think at first Joel denies it. And then he's pretty quickly, he's like, yeah, you know, you're right, like comes a point in a man's life where he has to plant his flag, like stand up for himself, yada, yada. And we, I, I really like, like as Joel is sort of giving his whole presentation here, we get reaction shots from Marilyn. We can really see that she's, she's upset, but she's like, first of all, Marilyn doesn't say a lot, but you know, she, I don't think she has anything that she can say for Joel here. Cause he's, it seems like he's really like made up his mind with what he's saying. Yeah, he goes into some colorful uh, comparisons. He's asking where his mother is. And Marilyn says, like, oh, she's looking at eagles. And <laughs> Joel says, like, Nadine Fleischman, is she just turning into John J. Audubon? And for those of you who don't know, uh, John J. Audubon is John James Audubon. And he was an American ornithologist that was able to combine two things, his love of ornithology and his love of art. So he was making, like, a book that detailed all types of American birds. And in fact, he is what the National Audubon Society is actually named after. Yeah, very important bird dude. I like that he gets a little mention here. And it's funny. It's a nice little uh, pop culture or like tri or trivia moment. Uh, Nadine Fleischman is is this uh, Mr. Audubon now. Yeah. <laughs> There's also um, a very key language right here where he says like, you know, I mean, this uh, this is coming from a woman. He thinks pigeons are flying rats. <laughs> Again, bringing up the imagery of flying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, apparently she's had a change of heart, at least for eagles, um, in this whole idea of freedom, flight, isolation, and stillness, and uh, listening. That's, I guess, the big, the big part of her storyline. Well, let's see. The next time we see, like, Joel with his dad, we already kind of talked about it, but it's when... Nadine comes back and both Joel and Herb are concerned, you know, that she's like fallen off a cliff essentially. Um, but the next like scene that we really get between Joel and his dad is after the, the Manny's coat scene. It's like the morning, I guess, that Joel's parents are getting ready to leave and his dad is packing a suitcase and, um, you know, I wrote this down that I thought was interesting because we just got a scene about Manny's coat and Joel compliments his father's new sweater. I'm not sure if that has any significance for you. My best guess is, uh, you know, these are like articles of clothing that are worn on the outside. Maybe it's like, it's, this is like a way of like breaking the ice for them is just like talking about, but I don't know, like, what does this mean? Maybe it's like there's something deeper that they need to get at. And they're only talking about the surface. Uh, I think those are all valid. I think those are all valid interpretations, Lee. I, I like where you're going with this. I think that um, off the top of my head, I know that they're both 
have distinctive animal names. So that sweater is made of lamb's wool. Mm -hmm. And the coat is a camel hair coat right there. I just can't wrap it in my head right now. Might have something to do with like, you know, because like Nadine's whole flight and freedom is tied to an eagle spirit. That's like an animal spirit in a way. So maybe this is like trying to tie some sort of like animal slash spiritual side to them that goes like past just like this uh, surface level of just like a, a human. This is more spiritual connection that they need to find. I don't know. Yeah, I think that can be one way to read into it. Um, I, I, I didn't think of this at all, which is why it's catching me <laughs> off yeah, guard. Yeah. I, I like that there is a connection here. I, I do like what you're saying here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the scene is basically them reminiscing about their past. Uh, they have the bonds that have connected them, the memories that they've spent together. That is the thing that connects them. And just like with the plot line between Holling and his soon-to-be son, it's not necessarily like what the act was. It's just the fact that they did the act together. That's the thing that's going to connect them. And that's what brings these two to listen to one another. Uh, they're finally talking about the times in which, yeah, Joel's sister drank too much root beer and looked like a rabid dog. Again, hold up, another hold animal up. imagery right there. Joel has a sister. This is like the first. I thought that was kind of no. I thought it was kind of weird too. Yeah, this is the first time that it's ever been brought up. Yeah, <laughs> like I did. They have like a line like that. Like a throwaway line where Joel was talking about a sister? No, this is the first. I, at least I was trying to look into this, and I think on uh, I checked on Moose Chick. I think this is the first time we ever hear about Joel's sister. That is insane. <laughs> <laughs> They're just casually dropping a bomb like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she drank too much root beer, and she's like very sick. She was like foaming at the mouth sick in some way. They really, mm-hmm. you know, they really laugh it off. And maybe it's partly because Joel had this realization with the, with Manny's camel coat that you know Manny was younger than his dad, and Manny is already dead. So Joel's dad is he could die. You know, it's a thing. That's the, the mortality of it. And so Joel is maybe ready to forgive, or you know, basically what he says is like, "You're right. You're wrong. It doesn't matter in the end. Like you're dead one day." So yeah, I don't know. It's I didn't feel like it was necessarily like a super strong conclusion as far as like tying everything together thematically, but it did feel, um, what I really liked about the ending here is it just felt very real. Like, at least for me, this is kind of how family works. Like you argue, you get on each other's nerves, uh, but at the end of the day, you're always family and you've already like shared so much with each other that... Yeah, like you're saying, Charles, they have this like shared experience that they can laugh over. Yeah, it's one of those things where like it's an intensely vulnerable moment and you're just trusting that, you know, your loved ones, particularly those of the familial bond, aren't going to exploit that. You're going to help each other out right there and you're going to listen to one another. And it's the trust that you have between uh, your family members. And we can see that trust happening at the end of this scene where Joel helps his father with the luggage and his father allows him to. He says he hands him uh, one of the pieces of the luggage. Yeah, and you know, like, Herb Fleischman was boasting about how he, like, 
had to basically, you know, guide Joel through anatomy course. You know, he's like, he's kind of like the one in charge of Joel. And at this point now, Herb is like letting Joel be in charge of him. He's like, yeah, take this, like lead me where I need to go. You know, he's, he's kind of letting, abdicating, I guess, or like letting that happen. Right. Which is why I was really confused and not very pleased with the ending scene, which is, um, you know, where we're tying it all back to the brick uh, where Chris and the gang are watching that cooking show. And it has Joel talking with Marilyn. And he's saying, like, did uh, did she actually fly? Like, is that like, that sounds too crazy. I'm going to go get like a neurologist in New York to look at her when she lands. I'm going to, you know. I want to make sure that she's okay. And while he's saying this, Marilyn has an inner monologue about that same speech right there. Dude. And I feel like that kind of like under like undercuts the moment that just happened between Joel and his father, which was about listening. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I was just so I was so taken aback by this ending scene because it's so freaking weird. Like not in a good way, like not in the good, like not in a good northern special way. way. (laughs) It was just like it's a combination of like the very bad VFX, and I think partly um, a lot of these VFX shots they've probably gone through so much treatment that they don't look as sharp and as crisp as the other shots. Maybe it's the way it was transferred to, but the Blu-ray, which is now like you know strikingly beautiful 1080. Anytime we see like a VFX shot in this episode, it gets like smudgier and just grainier and kind of bad looking. So we get like weird VFX shots of eagles soaring, uh, kind of like dissolving through. And Marilyn is just like sitting there quietly with this odd like internal monologue, as you said, with like this weird music happening. It almost felt like a weird David Lynch moment or something else. I, <laughs> I couldn't help but like try to stifle some laugh laughter. It was just so strange. Yeah. It's like Crazy. such a sitcom ending. It's like not good. <laughs> it's not, but I totally, you know, it flew past me, but what you're saying too, I was just kind of taken aback by it, but you are making a good point that it kind of nullifies some of the lessons that Joel may have learned about, listening i guess and uh yeah i'm gonna have to watch that ending scene again it's so bizarre bizarre is the right (laughs) word for that and it's a bizarre ending okay charles now is the time in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest typically someone who has never seen northern exposure before this is sort of our way of expanding the reach of the show but also getting like an outside opinion i know charles this was your first time watching this episode but maybe let's hear from someone who has never seen a single episode of Northern Exposure. We just kind of dropped them right into this episode. Our guest today is my good friend Preston. And actually, I think he does a really good job introducing himself. So without further ado, let's just listen to this nice recording, the soothing, dulcet tones of Preston. Hi there. Um, This is Preston Holm. I am a New Orleans live in person and no leak introduction to myself i'm a filmmaker and musician solo artist and producer and engineer for others work in camera department a lot of times and i watched watched this show it is called northern exposure 
The episode I watched was called Birds of a Feather. Season 5, episode 6, Birds of a Feather. I have to say, interesting choice for reggae music for a northern TV show. Doesn't really set you up for the theme of it. Other than it's kind of kooky, kind of funny. I watched it. I did enjoy it. I was scared I wasn't going to enjoy it because it reminded me of Twin Peaks, which I don't really like. But I watched this and I did like it. Yeah, even though I complained about the reggae music as the intro music, I did have to say the moose was funny. And I like a good animal. Um, live animals in film. It's hilarious. There isn't enough of it, actually. I'm all for, you know, Babe Pig in the City or other movies that contain animals in them that do cool tricks and stuff. Yeah, launching into the episode, I liked it. I liked it. Um, Didn't 100% follow it all the way through. There are lots of different themes. Definitely a pseudo-spiritual theme with the eagle and the flying getting away from it all and it's all bullshit. Let it all go and and be focused on what is truly there, which is the the wind and the the eagle, the the poem that the woman said. Yeah, and and, and how that changed the relationship between the mother and the son who liked to talk, talk, talk and never listen. I guess some of the ideas are formulating as I, as I talk about it. Just finished the episode not too long ago. And yeah, I really relate to the bartender. Hating baseball, hating sports. Not that I hate them, but I could imagine if I was a bartender and it was on all day, I'd get sick of it. Just the mentality. Why not sit around with your friends watching an opera at the bar? Why does it have to be the same repeatable action? No drama, no change. Just the same every day. Did he hit it with the bat? Oh, great, he did. Yeah, he's the best one because he plays for us. But weirdly, um, young wife, weird weight age difference that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, and I recognize, you know, one of the bar patrons... I think is an actor. It's famous. And he was good. He was good. He was good in the in the film. What I didn't like, I guess, is I think a lot of these thing themes are strung together on by a shoelace. Like I said before, you know, kind of the Twin Peaks thing, like why do we care about it? But I did care about the characters. That's the difference to me. I think that's the big difference. I cared cared about the characters i could relate to them you know the woman who showed the mountain the the woman who fell off the cliff the doctor his father who's stern and they have a dry relationship um yeah i like the characters so you know that's the most important thing for me what necessarily happened is something else maybe she grew because she had a revelation about talking and but you know not a lot happens. Where's the character arch? The doctor doesn't grow. Bird woman grows. Yeah, she does. Father doesn't grow. Nothing helps the native woman receptionist. But yeah, weird show. Pretty weird. Pretty cool. I don't know if I'd recommend it to people. 
I would. Yeah. If we had a if we got into a um, conversation about, you know, strange television from the 90s. Yeah. I think I would say, "Hey, have you seen that show Northern Exposure?" I saw it once. Thought it was pretty funny. Characters were relatable. I wouldn't say it f- but, you know, I wouldn't say it's limp. It was, it was, you know, fairly pretty good, you know. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. This is Preston Holmes signing off. Can't think of anything else for this podcast. So I hope I potted, I casted. Also, I, I, this whole podcast I don't understand. Because Northern Exposure to me seems like a regional thing. We're down here in New Orleans. We got a vibrant culture. What is going on with this northern exposure? I'm, I'm from the north. You know, I think about it sometimes, but uh seems like they were up there in the summertime, the moose and everything. And uh, yeah, don't don't mind if I do. I would I would love to uh, jump in a northern lake right now. That'd be amazing. Northern lake in the summertime. Yeah. All right. Signing off. All right, that was Preston with his thoughts about the episode right there. Preston's got a very uh very move at his own pace um cadence. Eccentric right? Yeah, yeah. He's got his own little cadence. I really like it though, you know. It's a lot easier to edit, by the way, when people take pauses. <laughs> and sorry, I was just thinking about this lately cuz I was doing some like interviewing jobs and every person we interviewed was talking so fast and one person you know, had uh, well thought out ideas and also, you know, a nice calm cadence, which is, I guess, you know, very easy to edit. Yeah, well, like, you know, people who like listen to podcasts all the time, they watch YouTube videos, uh, they watch television interviews, and they look so simple because <laughs> like it's heavily edited. Like oftentimes on like even like video essays or um, audio books, uh, people that are like reading aloud and having it be recorded. Sometimes every single line is a new <laughs> recording. Like it is chopped it up and like combined it into pieces. I remember talking to um uh, a fellow at this radio station and I was like, yeah, how do they actually do that? And he was like, yeah, we had somebody, he had to do like an hour long recording of this audio. Um, he was reading aloud and literally every single sentence was like a new <laughs> sentence just to get the perfect tone. I was like, oh my God. Well, I, this reminds me of... Um there's like a clip of Owen Wilson doing like, it's like a, it's like an advertisement for Loki, the TV show. And it's mm-hmm. Owen Wilson, but every single word in the sentence was clearly cut from a different take. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to find it and uh, plug it in here right now. It's really good. And this is the first time for me in the Marvel universe. <laughs> I mean, it's just like those things where they, um, they have like some like uh, famous person, a uh, politician or whatever, like sing a song. And it's like right. obvious that it's like clipped. <laughs> like it's like Obama sings like um, Obama sings all star. And it's like obvious. Like every single word. It's like from different eras of his life. <laughs> Not only different moments, but different years and eras. Uh, well, okay. Sorry. Anyway. Yeah, go ahead. Anyway, let's get back to Preston right here. He seems to have a uh, predilection for the kooky fun theme that Northern Exposure is putting out there getting out some uh reggae energy as he describes it yeah that's that's a good point that preston made reggae geographically doesn't really fit not not regionally accurate for alaska or you know this show was shot kind of closer to seattle i guess but still that's 
It's not really what you think of when you think reggae, but he did point out like just the sort of tone, the vibe of the music is kooky, which I think you could say this episode for sure, but lots of episodes of Northern Exposure have sort of a kooky, odd vibe. And and he like relates that to what I guess we should start calling like the twin, like maybe the evil twin cousin of Northern Exposure. Everyone keeps <laughs> relating it to Twin Peaks, but you know, they're very different shows, but they ran at the same time both set in like the Pacific Northwest area in the 90s. But it's funny, he was he said he's not a big fan of Twin Peaks. Most people I think are big fans, but he's not afraid to admit not a fan, but perhaps maybe more of a fan of Northern Exposure. Yeah, well, um uh, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> like he kind of like gave like a uh I like yeah. Like it's not like a wishy-washy thing. He just had to think about it. He was like processing it. It's like processing Processing, <laughs> processing. It's good. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, this is going towards the end of his review, but he did. I like that he said, uh, if he's ever in a strange conversation about weird shows from the 90s, he would most certainly recommend Northern Exposure. So he's got it in his back pocket now. If he ever finds himself <laughs> in that specific situation, he can talk about it. Yeah, he uh, he was all about. Uh, that hauling plotline about mm-hmm. sports being boring. He found that to be like, like I had said earlier, like tossing a spherical object through a toroidal hoop. He was just saying like it's the same action over and over and over again. Though I will say that like watching a play or an opera, it's also like the same thing. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying because it's it's a written piece of material that is performed again and again. Yeah, I mean, it's got a script and everything. Yeah, it's true, <laughs> in a way, yeah. Uh, but yeah, why not the opera? I did like that. And I guess, you know, they're not watching the opera at the end, but cooking shows on TV, very different from sports, even if the um, patrons at the bar can celebrate it as if it were a sports game. Uh, by the way, that, well, actually, I don't know, but I, I'm assuming that the movie star that Preston recognized in the bar was probably John Corbett, the actor John Corbett, who plays Chris Stevens in this show, he was in Sex in the City, a, a few other things of of note, of course. Um, maybe he's thinking of Barry Corbin, the old the older guy. He's in he's in some stuff too. Maybe didn't we have a guest that like recognized Chris from the uh, what were they like the chili commercials? <laughs> no, it was uh, Walgreens. I think it was one of the, yeah, maybe it was Chili's no, actually Applebee's. It- it was yeah, Applebee's. yeah, maybe it was Applebee's. I think Someone that was, was like, um, I think that was Jeff, the comedian. Oh, was it him? He was like, uh, it's <laughs> like the guy from the uh, Applebee's, Applebee's commercial. And we were like, what? And we like looked it up, and <laughs> sure enough, it's his voice. Maybe that's how Preston recognizes Chris. Yeah, it could be. Could be that the fame, Applebee's fame. Uh, yeah, Preston also points out that Holling has a weirdly young wife. I mean, yeah, it's like that from the first episode. I mean, they're not married in the first episode, but that's kind of like, it was already established. So we're going into Northern Exposure with this. We can't take it back, I guess, for some reason. Yeah, well, like, it's not his fault. It's not Preston's (laughs) fault that he's um, bewildered by this circumstance. It's just that we've grown used to it, and he is absolutely new to the show. But like, yeah, uh, it's, it's our fifth season at this point. We're like, that's par for the course. One nice thing that Preston said was, he said it like this, you know, all the themes are strung together on a thin string. Why do we care about it? And I think when he said it, I'm guessing, I'm assuming he meant like the story, the plot, like why does this, why does any of this matter? Why do we care about it? But he says, I cared 
about the characters. So yeah, I mean, we've said this before. It's sort of a character-driven show. And, you know, for some people, maybe they enjoy the zany sitcom of like the plot that's happening in this episode. But I bet a lot of people who watch it and are continuing watching it now that we're in the fifth season is it's just such a comfort being around these characters who by now are extremely well fleshed out, I think. Um, even if it's kind of teetering in the fifth season, we don't really know what's happening with everything. But, um, you know, you, you care about these characters and you tune in every week to, to see them. Yeah, it's just like going back to your hometown, which he which he says is kind of like New Orleans. Like to him, it's got like its own vibe and everything. He He knows how it works and... He was just a little off place by how things worked up there in the north in Alaska. But like we said, you know, once you get associated with characters, once you get associated with your town, it's kind of just what you flow with. Yeah. I also like that, like when he was saying that at the end, he was about to sign off. And then he was like, this whole podcast, I don't understand. Because <laughs> we're, you know, we're in the South, Charles. And this is all about, you know, northern life. But <laughs> Okay, the last little note I have from Preston's commentary is he mentions that the doctor, Joel, and his father don't grow, but the mom grows. And at first I was like, no, surely like all the, you know, there's some conclusion to this arc. But it also reminded me, Charles, you kind of pointed this out. The very last scene, in a way, undoes whatever lesson it seemed that Joel learned. Because you were, I think you were talking about how Joel kind of, the lesson that his mom learned was, you know, to talk less and listen. But in the end, Joel uh, seemingly has not learned this lesson. Yeah, maybe that's what Preston was picking up on was yeah. the fact of, you know, returning back to the status quo right there. Uh, I think that's why me and you had docked so many points off of the episode was because of this lackluster ending. And in fact, I, I mean, I think going off of recollection, you can just cut that entire last scene between Marilyn and Joel, and I believe the episode would still flow. Like, I believe the scene right before that is a good ending scene. Yeah, I think the scene before it, if I had to guess, it's been a moment since we recorded our previous section, but I'm pretty sure it's like Joel's dad packing up and leaving, probably. Or maybe it ends on the Shelley, the Shelley and Holling plotline, which would not be as awesome. But uh, But hey, Preston, thank you so much for watching the episode and recording on such short notice for us here. Really enjoyed your commentary. We'll have to get you on again sometime in the future. And Charles, we're going to return next week to talk about the seventh episode in season five. It's called Rosebud. Now, what could that mean? That is, is it's got to be Citizen Kane, right? Like, I, <laughs> is there another like, the like Rosebud, can that mean anything else? It's like the cheat code in The Sims for like a thousand yeah, simoleons but- or something. <laughs> That comes from that comes from yeah, Citizen Kane. I though. guess The Sims wasn't created yet at the time of the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It does have. Uh, uh, I'll give it away. There is a large Citizen Kane tie-in. So next week, Charles, I'll see you then. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Preston for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.